Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at Old Testament ethics with Dr. Ian Proven, professor of biblical studies at Regent College and the author of Seeking What is Right, The Old Testament and the Good Life. Dr. Proven, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Your view of Old Testament ethics, where do you start? What is the foundation? What's at the core for you? Well, I think the core is actually one step further back, and that is how do we think about ethics at all, really? I mean, that's um, so many people would say that they want to be good. Perhaps even most people would say they want to be good. But the question is, what does that mean? How would you know? And so the whole idea that we need Scripture fundamentally to teach us such things is where I would begin, and it's where I actually do begin in this particular book. All right, and could you give some more specifics, what um, core values are or principles? Well, I mean, I think what we're looking for as we read Scripture for for how we should live is we're we're looking for— to discern God's plan, obviously, for the world and for our lives. And so whatever we're doing, we're trying to read everything within the context of the whole narrative of Scripture. And inevitably, as in any narrative, the beginning of the story tends to be rather important. And so I do continually go back, as I believe we're encouraged to do in Scripture, to the beginning to ask what are God's creation plans uh, for us. So um, the opening chapters of Genesis are are very important, I think, for what comes next. All right. So uh, in terms of, go ahead and expand on that more, the creation story and what's crucial there. Well, I mean, the fact that God creates and that um, we are fallen, so let's just think of Genesis 1 to 3 as a whole unit at the moment, raises all sorts of difficulties about how well we know God to begin with and how well we can discern what is good. And biblically, of course, the answer, I think the fundamental answer to the question, what is goodness, is God. It's the character of God. Um, and so knowing to know God is also to to know good, to begin to understand what goodness is. Um, And so the question of God creating who this God is, is God fundamentally good? And the biblical answer, yes. And then in terms of our own uh, nature and capacities, um, the image-bearing nature, you know, God creates us in his image uh, as moral beings with uh, moral agency, these are some of the fundamentals that we never depart from, I think, in, in thinking about biblical ethics after, afterwards. And so in the, the creation mandate to serve and keep the earth, mm. to uh, multiply, subdue the earth, all that, um, what do you see there going on in terms of how mm. it f- forms your or informs your ethics? Well, I I think um, in Genesis one and two we are uh, we are told about the three kinds of right relationships that ought to mark our our world our, our right relationship with God, 
uh, with each other as human beings and with the rest of creation. And I think in Genesis 3, we witness the fracturing of those relationships. And, of course, the redemptive story is all about the way in which the fractures are dealt with, the way in which the, the sin-evil problem is dealt with, are calling back into right relationships in these areas. And eventually, of course, the, the healing and the resolution of all of these difficulties. And so uh, discerning what it means to live a good life is is really fundamentally about discerning what that looks like in these three spheres, I think, our relationship with God, with each other, and with the rest of creation. And certainly um, Genesis 1 and 2 uh, say a lot of things that are directly relevant to all of the all of these areas, I believe. All right. And uh, there's uh, many different genres of literature within the Old Testament. Uh, how do you go about, go ahead and take some, several examples and how that, of course, mm. is going to change or inform your ethics? Well, I mean, the fundamental genre, I believe, of Scripture is narrative. I mean, I think if we're thinking about what the kind of thing the Bible is, it's basically a long narrative with lots of other different kinds of things embedded within it, like poetry and proverbs and psalms and all the rest of that. And so I think the right way of reckoning with all of these other genres and types of, of literature is to read them rightly within the context of the whole flow of the narrative. Uh, and this, of course, helps us to see that, of course, uh, law is a major category, right? So in a lot of what we read in the Pentateuch are quite specific instructions about what we should and shouldn't do. But beyond that, there's also the wisdom literature, books like Job and Proverbs, and those are all contributing in different ways to the same set of questions. And I think a lot depends then on how we read these together. We assume they ought to be read together, but what does it mean to read the law of Moses well in the context of the whole narrative becomes, for example, one of the driving questions. What does it mean to read uh, Proverbs in relation to the law of Moses when we're thinking about Christian ethics is another big question. It's a primary question. And the answer we give to these questions, um, these answers are going to add up to quite different ways of thinking, I, I believe, about what is good in the end. So um, let's go back to narrative, for example. Um, what sort of interpretive principles would you be especially dealing with when you're trying to learn what God has to say about ethics? Well, I mean, narrative is, is actually a rather interesting example to begin with because I think it's fairly clear that some deep principles are laid down as to how we ought to live in narrative. So we ought to behave like image bearers. We, we ought to serve and keep creation, to just to quote the, the, the biblical language there. We ought to do those things. A lot of narrative, though, is is not explicitly giving us kind of um, principles of behavior. Um, these principles are embedded in there, but we have to work a little bit harder 
And it is possible to make mistakes because the other thing about narrative is it also describes what people actually did. And not everything, and perhaps not even most of what people in the biblical story do is good and right. They, they frequently mess up and do what is wrong. And we see immediately that if we make a mistake about our judgment in this area, we're going to go badly wrong because we'll interpret what somebody did and we'll think, oh, that's something I should imitate. But actually, maybe it's not. And because of the nature of biblical narrative, as being quite understated and subtle, um, the problem very often is we're not explicitly told. We have to engage with the narrative, and, and it does require our intelligence, our thoughtfulness, our reflectiveness. Uh, so, for example, we know that Abraham generally is presented as a very righteous person, but there are two instances where Abraham lies about his relationship with his wife, um, and it's not, it's not overtly clear, very, very clear that uh, Abraham is, is not to be imitated here, although the consequences in both cases do strongly imply it. Um, but there's different levels of explicitness, and we do have to recognize that if we're not going to make mistakes. All right, so we'll come back to more genres, particularly the law later. Mm. So in terms of other ancient Near Eastern cultures, I read not too long ago about com there was a comparison of um, the Old Testament and the Hebrews along with other cultures in terms of their ethics. And the author said in some ways the Hebrews were more ethical. In some ways they were less ethical, so to mm. speak, according to his standard. So what, um, what's your opinion on all that? How, does, how do things compare? Well, I mean, part of the difficulty here, if that's even the right word, is that different cultures think about ethics differently, and they don't all mean the same thing by the word. Um, so, for example, if one has um, a pagan polytheistic view of the cosmos in which there are many gods, none of them are transcendent. They're all within the system, just like we are. They're more powerful, maybe. They live longer. But they're not the... Because they're part of the system, part of the cosmic system, they're not the transcendental basis for ethics. In fact, that's not how these ancient cultures looked at things at all. And in these cultures, uh, order tends to become the dominating idea. Um, so does something contribute to harmony or does it contribute more to chaos? And you're a good person if you contribute to harmony and not chaos would be the simplest way of putting that. If you think about the biblical view, of course, the biblical view is very different because the creator God whose character defines what is good is the creator, not part of the system. And so you think about the biblical prophets and when they're talking about right and wrong, they're always appealing to God and the character of God. And in fact, therefore, a harmonious system can actually be a very wicked system, societal mm -hmm. system. Just because there's harmony doesn't mean it's good. And this leads to the, the, the situation of somebody like Jeremiah, where the entire culture is against Jeremiah in terms of what is right and good. But Jeremiah is viewed and presented to us as the righteous person. 
Um, and so when we use the word ethics and even when we use the word good, we have to recognize that different cultures at different times give that those words different ways. They don't mean the same thing in different ways of thinking about the world. All right. Speaking of words, um, could you go over a few of the key words? Uh, I know there's words for sh- uh, shalom and words for righteousness mm. and all that. So um, mm. that might be helpful. Well, I mean, I think righteousness is just being on the right way. And again, in biblical terms, that means fundamentally, I believe, being relationally right with God and with each other and with the rest of creation. And then you can detail all the ways in which that works out, which we can perhaps do as we go along. Um, shalom is really the consequence, I think. Best thought is the consequence of all of that. So a situation of shalom is, I think, biblically, when things are working as they should and the peaceableness and the joy and the satisfaction that emerges from that. So shalom is a difficult word to translate for that reason. Sometimes people simply have used the word um, peace, for example, whatever, but that doesn't really capture it. It's a very rich concept that arises from uh, the world working as it should and all the good that flows out from that. Um, So there are different words that relate to this, but what all of them have in common is, I believe, the idea that, that we are made by a creator to live in a certain way. And we find our deepest satisfaction and so on, ultimately, if not all the time, because there are other factors that mess this up, of course, but we find our ultimate meaning and satisfaction and joy in living that world, living out that world, and not other ones, basically. And uh, let's take a look at the New Testament, or the relationship to the Old Testament. Scholars, of course, have debated over this for centuries, how to understand continuity and discontinuity between Mm -hmm. the two in terms of ethics. So if you could speak into that, and especially then address what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Yes. Well, I mean, of course, you're quite right, Dennis. There's been a lot of controversy about this over the years with people taking very markedly different positions on the relationship between the Testaments. But for my own part, I think it's clear that the continuity is, is massively more obvious than the discontinuity. And I I have a feeling that the reason people don't see that is because they don't know the Old Testament well enough to notice when the New Testament is actually not doing something new. The the assumption is that, you know, this is new, but actually it's not. And, And when our Lord himself is talking about this, he's constantly pointing people back to what we now call the Old Testament as the the basis, the fundamental basis for how they should live before God. And he's he's giving us a lot of guidance on how to read those scriptures well rather than badly. And we can talk about a few examples maybe of that. I think in the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually doing the same kind of thing. He sometimes people have said, have heard Jesus as saying you have heard the Old Testament say this, but I now say this in the New Testament, as it were. But I, I think that's a misunderstanding. I think what he's saying actually is, you've heard people claiming that the Old Testament says this, but I'm now putting you right. <laughs> this is really what the Scriptures teach. 
Um, and I don't think there's any difference between the Testaments in terms of what I would call moral vision. That is, what are the things we should be aiming for? For very good reason that these things are grounded in the character of God who never changes. And so unless God is simply arbitrarily making up rules, as it were, as he's going along, you know, these rules for this time, these other rules for a later time, um, which doesn't seem to fit the biblical picture of God at all, I think we would assume continuity. And then, of course, there are some ways in which the church is not called to live out this vision in the same ancient Israel. And I'm sure we're going to go on and talk about some of these in a moment. Yeah, the first one I would think of is the issue of violence. And mm. um, I'm a pacifist, more from an Anabaptist Quaker perspective, and I know you're um, more from a just war perspective. Mm. So I suppose you'd see more continuity, and I would see more discontinuity there. Well, I mean, we would need to talk to each other before we'd know, <laughs> I think, exactly how great the difference is. Um, I mean, at one level, I I would say both of those things are right, but it all depends what we mean. Um, and so I think it's true in the Old Testament as in the New that we, the people of God, are called not to exercise personal vengeance with regard to enemies, for example. That's true of the Old Testament and the New. Um, so the idea that um, that we should not do it, and indeed that uh, when justice is worked out, it should be proportionate, for example, no more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That's an Old Testament idea that is reaffirmed, I think, in the New Testament as well. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, though, the people of God is an actual people group living in an actual place under kings or judges or leaders with legal systems and all the things that people need to live in the world, and God has chosen to work through that particular people group. And therefore, there are things bound up with the life of that people group that are not bound up with the life of the church as the global people of God. Uh, and there are some discontinuities there, fairly important ones, but they're not discontinuities in the character of God, it seems to me. They're discontinuities in the nature of the calling given where we are in the biblical story. So there again is the the importance of reading everything in the context of the story, the narrative. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the key verse for me that Jesus says in Matthew 5 is, don't think that I've come to, the, to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting too how um, scholars for some time now you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, they call those antitheses. Yeah. And you see more continuity there, so you probably wouldn't call them antitheses, would you? Um, no, I, I, well, they're antitheses between the tradition that people have been taught and what Jesus is now teaching. But I think the point that that's being made here is that these are bad interpretations of Scripture. Mm. And if you think about it, a lot of Jesus' ministry was addressed to people who were reading the Bible badly. And he wasn't saying, don't read it. He was saying, no, you should read it, but you should read it much better and uh, with more attentiveness to the whole shape of the narrative, right? So they are antitheses, but I don't read these as an antithes antitheses between the Old Testament and what Jesus is now teaching. 
In fact, he constantly refers back to the Old Testament as active scripture for his listeners. And the Apostle Paul explicitly tells us that all scripture is inspired and useful for the church for a whole bunch of purposes. And of course, he is mainly there referring to the Old Testament because at the time when he's writing to Timothy, the New Testament doesn't exist. Um, so clearly the Old Testament is, is, and this is how the early church, the earliest Christians also viewed it. Um, if, if we ask what are the scriptures that teach us how to live as Christians, the answer would be fundamentally the Old Testament scriptures plus the emerging apostolic writings that are telling you how to read that well, right? I think that's how I would put it. So I'm not, it's not that I think people are utterly wrong to use the language of antithesis. I just think we have to be more precise about what we mean by it. All right. And as far as some more specifics in Old Testament ethics, uh, you continually see admonitions to take care of the poor, the Mm. orphans, the widows. So there's a great care there for the marginalized people. So um, how would you flesh that out in terms of your ethics? Well, um, on every such question, I would begin at the beginning and work forwards. That's one of my basic principles, that we're given a scripture that's a narrative. And if we're going to do a good job, we have to begin at the beginning and work forward. So I'd begin in Genesis, and I'd point out that all human beings are image bearers, not just some, that they're all equal before God in their being, their, their, their existence, that they are all called to govern the earth and to look after the garden and so on, and that therefore we ought all to consider each other as stakeholders in the whole project, and there shouldn't be people who are marginalized and poor vis-a-vis very rich, powerful, that that there's something wrong with the world. Not when there's, I don't think the Bible is for some some kind of mathematical impossible equality, but I do think it's very much against extremes um, where people lose their stake, where they become, um, you know, outside uh, any form of representation or, and, and all of that. So, yes, um, both the law and the prophets put a lot of emphasis on looking after, actively looking after those who are on the wrong side of that equation, on justice being equally accessible to everybody. Um, and there are, are a whole bunch of laws, in fact, designed to get land back into the hands of the families who have lost it. For, for whatever circumstance. So they lived in the same world, broadly speaking, that we do, and they knew that it's fallen human nature to want to accumulate and to, to coerce and oppress and to be unjust. And the whole biblical tradition says, well, that may be what many people think in their harmonious way of looking at the world, but it's very wicked when measured by the character of God. All of that, needless to say, carries into the New Testament as well, right? And the same, you see the, the early church apprehending quite early on in, in the book of Acts that they are the continuation of this people of God and they ought to be looking after people in the same way in the book of Acts. Um, so that's a good example of fairly obvious continuity, I think. 
So economics are definitely part of that. So could you speak in a little more detail about something as specific as, uh, say, the Jubilee year? Well, I mean, the Jubilee is a good example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Here are mechanisms in the law, um, in the in the moral framework, mechanisms designed every so often to correct things in major ways that have that have gone wrong. And so, in the same way that the Sabbath is a weekly uh, constraint because it it forces those with economic power and control to give rest even to their animals we notice which is goes back to that creation theme but certainly to their slaves and so on so if we're in a world where there's already inequity the sabbath at least gives some respite to that laws of redemption of the land give some respite some some way of correcting things when they've gone to a certain point and the jubilee is a large-scale example of that. Um, the interesting thing about the Jubilee, though, is that we don't have any evidence that I know of that it was ever actually practiced or enacted. And you can understand why, because it's such a massively idealistic, counterfactual kind of uh, set of set of instructions. And, and so it became, I think, quite early on, part of the vision of the world that would only ever really be in the future once all things were put to rights because it's so gloriously, as it were, impractical from our fallen point of view. And how would you how do you enforce it anyway? And if you enforced it in a fallen world, would would good come from that? Because you'd need a tremendous level of power to do it. And since since I don't think imposition is the main idea, I think what's being looked for is generosity and righteousness. Mm. There are questions about that that um, we would need to, to grapple with. But the mere fact it's there as an ideal is very significant, it seems to me, in terms of the the biblical perspective on righteousness that we're talking about. You have a schema of creational, stiff-necked, and ritual law. Hmm. So given those categories, how do you see the commands in Leviticus? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, So let me explain this little schema first of all. So ritual law is the kind of laws relating to things like the sacrificial system and all of that. So the system that's put in place by God for Israel specifically to enable them to live in that ancient world, uh, to remember certain important things about reality, to, you know, by their habits and practices, be kept from the worst apostasy and idolatry and, and all of that. So these are part and parcel of the, the life of that particular people group. And I think the New Testament makes it reasonably clear, and it's not it would not be surprising to us, that when the people of God become this global people, that those parts don't carry over because they're designed for those people. And so that, there's that. Creational law is the stuff rooted in the character of God that does not change at all from beginning to end. So that's the moral vision the things we're talking about that you would expect to be continuous. And in the middle, we have this law, that, and I've kind of invented this terminology, although it's old King James language, really, hmm. stiff neck law, which is um, is law that's given by God, and it's not, it's, not laying, it's not setting before people 
ideals of behavior. It's not calling people, you know, to to kind of righteousness and holiness so much as it is designed to clear up some of the mess that people make in the middle, as it were. And so, and so let's take an example here where Jesus is speaking, looking back on, on some of this stuff. Let's take the example of divorce. Jesus is asked, is divorce basically, you know, what about divorce? And he says, well, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, I know that Moses permitted you to divorce under certain circumstances, but let me remind you that in the beginning, it was not so. Um, and I think what he's saying there is part of a larger kind of biblical argument that there is the creational plan of God, the moral vision. But then, of course, people don't live it out. And in ancient Israel, we have a whole bunch of law that's designed to deal with the consequences of the fact they don't live it out. And I hear this text in the New Testament as, as saying that, yes, because of, and Jesus says, doesn't he, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses did this. And I think he's essentially saying, if there's going to be divorce, and in the fallen world there will be, it's a good thing it should be regulated rather than not regulated. But don't get confused about this. Just because it's in the law doesn't mean that God thinks it's a good thing. I think that's so that's what I mean by stiff neck law, the kind of law that is addressed to people who will not, cannot actually pursue the vision, pursue God. And this is societal law designed to offer some constraint. We have this kind of law in abundance in, in, in all of our countries nowadays because every human society needs it. And I think in the case of this law, we can learn quite a lot sometimes from the principles involved. In this, in this kind of way of, of thinking, in terms of forming our stiff neck law, if I can put it that way, and so you may find continuity there, and you may may, may not. So, so now I can ask you a question on Leviticus. I, I think I hadn't forgotten. Um, in Leviticus, the key question I think for any Bible reader is which aspects of Leviticus represent the moral vision, and which aspects represent stiff neck law and which aspects represent ritual law and we need mm -hmm. to be able to make judgments on that to know how they apply to us um, so I think quite a bit of Leviticus is obviously moral vision stuff I mean that is the book from which we get the famous commandment love your neighbor people don't realize that Jesus didn't make that up um, he's quoting scripture love your neighbor. So clearly there are commands. I think a lot of the boundary stuff, if you think about various rules about um, sex and stuff like that, a lot of those boundary rules are clearly related, I think, to the Genesis vision and, and the whole biblical idea of what sex is for and how it relates to identity and all of that. On the other hand, there are other aspects where we're clearly told that aspects of the law don't apply to Christians, and there are other ones that we can deduce fairly easily, probably don't either. For one thing, a lot of these rules were designed to help ancient Israelites not be overly influenced by Gentiles. But now that in the church, the Jew-Gentile distinction is, is gone, 
it's not surprising that circumcision, for example, would be gone mm. because that's a marker between Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul gets so cross about it in Galatians because he says, you Galatians are fundamentally misunderstanding where you are in the story. Right? This, is not, this is not the gospel. So that, that's, um, that may have seemed like a long answer, but honestly, in relation to the argument of the book, as you well know, it was quite a short answer, actually, because this is such an important area. So, so the language of stick, stiff-necked, would uh, the language of concession and accommodation, would that, be, would that fit? That's right. I mean, you, there's different ways, words that people have used about this. Accommodation certainly is one, concession. Um, so in this way, it's properly biblical and right, I think, to say that God works with what he finds in front of him, trying always to turn evil to good, um, and accommodates himself for good reason to the wickedness of the people in front of him. And it's not just a matter of the law. It's actually part of the narrative tradition. You may remember that it's the people who ask sinfully for a king in First Samuel. And it's very clear this is a wrong thing to ask for. They shouldn't be doing it. But God says to Samuel, well, nevertheless, give them one. And then God integrates that bad idea into the redemptive story such that it becomes something useful. And and so you see there, God moves towards, as it were, towards the people and and gives them law, or in this case, gives them an institution um, that is, he, he's paying attention to the state of their hearts and minds, shall we say, in doing that. And that's all very good, unless we as Bible readers get confused about that and think it's some kind of ideal, right? If we mistake stiff neck law for what God really wants of people throughout all time, we're going to obviously make quite dangerous mistakes, actually. So this is a very important issue. Right. Like with Charlemagne, which you write about. Yes, I mean, uh, there's a whole history behind us now of people taking biblical kingship as the right way of thinking about all of reality. And so you get a succession of kings and emperors setting themselves up as second Davids in all sorts of ways and a king of Israel and reading all of what the Bible says about Israel as guidance for how you should then run your Christian state. And that has led... I mean, in the providence of God, it's led to some very good things, of course, but it's also led to some pretty bad things. And as you know, in the book, I track that from from Constantine through Charlemagne all the way down into later history, the idea of divine right of kings and the whole the whole business of of uh, how we govern ourselves is bound up with with these biblical um, biblical ideal ideas and uh, every part of the western world and quite a bit of the rest of the world has been influenced by by this including um, in North America for example so so in terms of regulating sin or eliminating sin there's also the example of slavery could you set the stage for 
mm. what slavery was like at the time and how um, what we can learn from this in terms of biblical ethics. Yes, I, I mean, so there, I think there are at least two questions here that you're alluding to, Dennis. Uh, so let me deal with the, what kind of thing are we looking at here? Because I think people don't sometimes do do the the little bit of work here that we need to get back into the ancient Near Eastern world and not simply bring our own world into that. A lot of slavery in the ancient Near East was uh, what we call debt slavery. So this was um, a kind of, it was a voluntary servitude, really. I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost a mistake to call it slavery because it gives such a misleading impression. Of course, people gave up their freedom. It's For a while, at least, it's absolutely true. But it was more of a, an economic arrangement under circumstances of hardship. That was one thing that slavery was. There was also slavery arising from war and prisons of war and all that stuff. So that was another part of it. Um, but it's not the same kind of thing as, for example, plantation slavery in the South in the 19th century, right? It's not the same kind of thing. Uh, it's not racially, ethnically based, for one thing, right? Um, so it, it's a certain kind of thing. Um, the second question would be, is that kind of slavery, or indeed any kind of slavery, biblical, is it is it part of the moral vision that God sets before us that we some of us ought to be masters and some of us ought to be slaves? Um, something like Aristotle would say, absolutely, it's in the nature of some people to be slaves. And this is where we have to go back to Genesis and notice that Genesis contradicts Aristotle and says, no, every human being, male and female, is made in the image of God. Um, everyone is called to govern as part of the whole stakeholding, looking after the garden thing that we were talking about. Mm. Slavery arises in the narrative, but it's not part of that creation vision. Uh, God proclaims law in relation to the reality of it that's designed to mitigate it, constrain it, you know, put, put a certain number of rules around it. Um, but I, I don't believe there's any basis, although many Christians before us would have disagreed with this, of course, but I don't believe there's any basis for saying that the Bible teaches us that slavery is good. Um, the, the, the most that it teaches us about goodness in relation to this is that, that God, being good, has wisely put regulation around it like other things so as to make it not quite as bad as it might be otherwise. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that when you get to the New Testament then and you see Paul advising, you know, Philemon, do you remember, about how he should treat his runaway slave, when you see Paul advising Christians in Corinth, if slaves can get their liberty, they should, that these are all keying in to this bigger idea that actually we're all brothers and sisters in New Testament language, which is simply a way of saying we're all image bearers, I think, actually. So uh, that's a great case study of, of why it's important to read all the texts within the scope of the entire narrative from beginning to end. Um, and of course, the most fundamental thing that God did on behalf of Israel uh, was to free them from slavery. That's so right. That's, that says a lot, too. That's right. And, of course, they're constantly reminded, they're told to remember that experience. 
as the basis for not treating other people badly like the Egyptians treated them. And that's a very important theme alongside the ongoing reality of some kind of slavery in Scripture. So reading all the texts that pertain to a topic and trying to understand how they relate to each other is pretty important in this whole business of reading Scripture for guidance on how we should live. Another issue that, of course, um, there's been a lot of debate about and a lot of recent scholarship is the, uh, the conquest, the genocide or attempted genocide of the Canaanites. Mm. Uh, so we have a language of commandment. Mm-hmm. But you also talk about there's the – is this concessionary? Is it accommodational? Is it – um, is God just working with people according to their limitations, mm-hmm. or is this truly what God wants? Well, I mean, different of my contemporary colleagues uh, take different views slightly on this. For me, though, the Bible seems to be very clear that this is not about the Israelites removing other people from a land in which they are inconveniently positioned, if I can put it that way. The whole frame of reference for Scripture on this is that this is the judgment of God, the unusual judgment of God on a particularly wicked set of cultures. That's the that's where the biblical authors are coming from. So I think before we, before any of us gets to the point of expressing agreement or disagreement about that, I think we, we owe them a duty of care <laughs> to try and clarify what it is they're claiming. Um, they don't see this as what we would call genocide, which is you know, one people killing another because of, I don't know, racial, ethnic hatred or desire to, you know, take over their land and so on. I think the Bible goes out of its way, actually, to, to, to not present such a view. The emphasis on the wickedness of the culture, these cultures over a very long period of time is manifest, I think, in Scripture. The, the commonest language about the conquest is God going before the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. So two components there. God is the one who's fighting, not the Israelites. He's driving them out. Uh, He's not slaughtering them all. Um, And so, again, reading every text relevant to this, I think, is very, very important. Now, that's the context in which we have to wrestle with the texts that do actually appear to talk rather dreadfully about you know wiping out everything that breathes and all of that. And these texts do exist. But I think it's clearer these texts were always puzzling, ought always to have been puzzling to the Bible reader because of the other things I'm saying. The reason for our puzzlement has become now clear um, because it's now clear that in the ancient world, this kind of highly exaggerated language about conquest is a typical feature of conquest accounts. In other words, when you're writing about victory and war, this is the kind of way these ancient people used to write. Um, it, it should not be overpressed. Uh, and if we overpress it, we get into dreadful difficulty because Joshua is said to have, you know, wiped out everything that breathes. And right. yet throughout the story afterwards, very obviously, there They're are there. many, many Canaanites around the place. And this is true for the rest of the Old Testament period, actually down to Solomon, who forces some of these folks into forced labor, you may remember. So we get into dreadful difficulty, just coherent 
coherence-wise if we press this language. And I think it's now clear why we oughtn't to press it anyway. So this comes back to the genre question. What kind of texts are these uh, in this ancient idiom? What are they? What are they really saying? And so I spend quite a bit of time here and in my other book, um, Seriously Dangerous Religion, trying to lay out more fully what I think they're saying and what I think they're not saying. Um, and then at least we have then at least we know what we're talking about, as it were. And one of the things that ought to become clear is that, that this does not give any modern state any license to go around committing genocide and whatever. And I spend a lot of time in the book, as you know, following that line and how horrendous horrendous events have, have occurred because of people's lack of hard work and perceptiveness in in these areas and the tendency historically to take what God is doing in Israel as your guidance for what you should do in, I don't know, 17th century England or something like that, right? Or in, or in South Africa or... Or in, indeed any the of these places. Expansion of the United States, right? Yeah, exactly. And as, I mean, in the U.S., of course, as I point out in the book, this idea of... Um, the Hebraic Republic is is one of the great ground sources for American self-identity. It's not the only one, but this idea that, that Americans should fundamentally think of themselves as Israelites uh, is one very influential stream in the history of, history of the U.S., and not just there, other places, but... Um, there, there's good reason for us to think hard about these things because we have a history behind us now in which we can see what the implications were of reading the Bible in this way or that way. So we right. Be- it's not an exercise we just do mentally. We have a lot of history to examine how those views were actually played out. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, I, I think many people think that history is mildly interesting or boring, whatever your view is, but not very important. But actually, I think... Knowing our history is crucially important. Knowing scripture first and then our history is really important because it gives us a proper sense of the street value of different views, if I can put it that way. Every view of scripture has a street value. It results in actual stuff, right? How we live, how we view others, when or if we fight wars, how we govern our societies, um, we now have a whole b- bunch of different consequences that are uh, available to us if, if we read history. And so as I, this book, of, as you know, is largely organized historically for that very, very reason, because I think it's just very helpful for us to see why it was those people thought that and did that. And do we agree or not? And if we don't or do, why do we do that and would we do the same or not and if not why not um, and so we do need I mean God has given us the kinds of scriptures that require of us commitment and a degree of hard work um, and that that's why we need educational programs in our churches to help each other to do that work well all right so speaking of history um, I want to take a look at some different periods within Old Testament history mm. and see how they, uh, they relate ethically. 
Uh, we already talked about the creation story in Genesis 2, but then there's the period from the fall to the flood. It, interestingly, God doesn't allow the eating of meat to after the fall, mm-hmm. and there's no capital punishment mm. till after the flood. I mean, I think I said fall. So eating meat and capital punishment after the flood. So what what is going on there? Yes, I, I don't personally... Um, agree with the position that there's no meat eating till after till after the flood and this has to do with how we read genesis 9 largely i think genesis 9 is actually about human beings now crossing the boundary between domestic and wild so i think this is about the kind of rampaging rapacious approach to creation um, as sin gets worse and gets more embedded in the world. Um, so I don't think it's about there wasn't meat-eating before and there was later. I think it's about that domestic animals are always within your domain, but wild animals um, you know, are not. And that, that one of the consequences of the ongoing impact of evil in the world is the tendency to view the whole world as objects for our enjoyment, survival, or whatever it is. Uh, now, in order to, I'm just going to say that, Dennis, because in order to argue it out, it would take way too long, and we need to talk mm-hmm. Hebrew, and some of your listeners would probably not enjoy that very much. So I'm going to just draw people's attention back to the book for on, on that issue, if that's okay, unless you press me on it. Um, so, um, so meat-eating was one of them. Um, the 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 kind of um, image-bearing capital punishment thing is important um, because it is the first explicit sign in the book that the image of God has not been removed as a result of the fall. Hmm. We're still to relate to each other as image-bearers, and therefore the taking of an image-bearing life is just a big deal. It's, it's one of the worst things. And it has to be met with a proper a proper response. You, you can't just sweep that under the carpet. And so I think that part of Genesis 9 is more about reminding people of who the people are in this story. They're, okay, they're fallen, but they're still precious, still image-bearing persons. And you cannot just ignore murder. Um, Now, I think that was already true because in Genesis 4, God does not ignore murder. It's just that what happens there is very interesting, that instead of God enacting blood vengeance on Cain, he sends him into exile, which I think reminds us that the way of dealing with grievous um, sins and crimes in the Bible um, that is not always quite as you expect. That If you read the narrative, you might expect certain things to follow on that don't as well. And so I just think Genesis 4 is, is interesting in relation to this because essentially God treats Cain as he doesn't deserve and allows him to to suffer a very a different kind of punishment with the potentiality i imagine for repentance although there's no evidence that Cain was ever much in the mood for repentance from 
from day one onwards. But um, so I think Genesis 9 and so on is very, very important, but not perhaps for the reasons that sometimes people sometimes people think. Um, so. so let's move on to uh, Abraham. So, of course, part of the blessing, um, part of the promise to Abraham is that he and his people will be a blessing to the world. And then mm. we see that really highlighted in Isaiah mm. that um, Israel is to be a light to the nations and it's about bringing the, the Gentiles in. So that theme of salvation for the whole world, mm -hmm. um, how does that, that missional mm. thrust, what does that have to do with ethics? Well, it's, it's hugely important because, of course, it's grounded in the idea that God has created everybody, right? And that, um, therefore, that the ethics we're talking about are not just for God's chosen people, but for everybody. And so it, it's, um, it comes after the first covenant with all living creatures in Genesis 9. This is now the covenant relating to all human beings. And it indicates, both these covenants indicate that God has not given up on creation, has not changed from plan A to plan B, as it were, but is still committed to everyone being saved in the second case, everyone living righteously. And that is a, a, a massively important um, truth in Scripture. And it's so important that the Apostle Paul can virtually think of the promise to Abraham as being the gospel. You know, that, that this is the fulfillment of it. Um, later on. So you see all of that working out, which is why both Jew and Gentile Christians are called to the same obedience, right? I mean, obviously there are certain things like circumcision that don't apply, but but we oughtn't to think of ethics as somehow just compartmentalized in this group or that group fundamentally. So the Abraham promise relates to this notion of, of creational moral vision, to, to these big, big ideas. Um, and, of course, the Mosaic law then is embedded within that more general truth, right? This is the, these are laws for this particular people group called to this mission. But the promise to Abraham is very important, I think, is giving you the kind of large arc within which we ask the question, what does it mean to be good? And so it's it's crucial for the Israelites to do their part yeah. and and shine their light by following God's commands because that's what's ultimately going to be attractive to the nations. That's right. And you see that emphasis elsewhere in Scripture as well in Deuteronomy. You know, the, the, the other people will look at you if you're if you're doing this rightly and will will be impressed, you know. Uh, the other side of that is they will look at you under judgment and they will <laughs> they they will be uh, dismayed, you know. So this idea that God's people, by living out the kingdom, by living out the the truth of the matter, will testify to the rest of the world. That's already in the Abraham idea. You see it in Exodus in the idea of um, the kingdom of priests all Israelites being priests, mediating blessing. You see it in Isaiah, as you say, different language, same idea, light to the nations. Um, so there are different ways of saying it, but the crucial thing here that remains true for the church, I believe, is that we are called 
to live in the light of the, the truth that we that we know so that other people can see this alternative that this 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 light uh, shining and uh, hopefully recognize it as being good and true and repent and join in right and of course we see the fulfillment in revelation 21 22 yeah so i mentioned isaiah but there's a lot of other prophets that have a whole lot of ethical admonitions yeah um, like amos particularly uh, what can you say about the prophets as a whole what's their role in terms of right ethics um I think the prophets are are really they're kind of um, they're big picture people too. They're looking to the past, the present, and the future. I think in different ways. They're not all doing the same exactly, but but I think generally prophets are reminding people of the the past, who they are, right, what their identity is, and exhorting them to live out that identity in the present so a lot of their stuff is directed very specifically to these israelites these judeans in these particular circumstances and then they're setting all of that in terms in in the light of the future and the eschatological developments where they all teach corporately again not everyone says everything about this but if you put them all together I think you see that they they see the world as ultimately having these three broken relationships of Genesis 3 put back together again. So um, this is the larger vision that we live into, a world in which we know already and we trust already that our relationship with God will be fully restored. There will be peace among the nations such that we all, you know, create plows and stuff out of weapons, that there will be creational peace such that um, it, it, this affects, um, this is a cosmic transformation. It's not just to do with people. So the prophets really um, are, are big picture people in that sense, reminding the Israelites that they are to live into this truth about who they have been and the vision of where they and everything else is going. And I think it's the same for us. We're, we're constantly called in the New Testament precisely to live in the kingdom as right now, you know, the now, even though there's also a not yet that we, we, haven't, we haven't completely got there yet. So, of course, the Israelites don't listen to the law or the prophets, mm. and they wind up under judgment in exile. So what does that period um, tell mm. us ethically, and how does that relate to us as right. what might be considered an exiled people? Well, I think that that reality of exile is quite, deliberately developed in some New Testament texts as a metaphor for our entire existence as the people of God. So exile is a particular moment in, in the Israelite story, of course, but even in a text like Daniel, Daniel 9, you see, you remember Daniel prays because he he's read Jeremiah and he knows the exile is supposed to come to an end in 70 years. But he receives a revelation that actually essentially says, actually, Daniel, this exile thing, this is going on to the end of time. That's how I read that. Hmm. 
So it's already being, it's already moving from a, a specific time period to being a way of thinking about the whole story coming afterwards in which we are pilgrims, we are not yet at home, we are to remember that we're not and to live into this other reality. And so I've, I've used this, of course, as I come toward the end of the book, particularly um, in terms of our moment, because I think it's quite helpful for us to think of ourselves the way we're exhorted in Peter, first Peter to think of ourselves as living in exile here, is particularly important in post-Christendom countries. So countries that have been deeply shaped by Christian faith in which we've all become comfortable with the with the idea that the church and the society are more or less about the same thing. And we're finding it difficult to recognize the extent to which that's no longer true. And it's very hard to shake our heads free of it because we grew up with it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, though, that we are increasingly, I think, in exile, um, living in a strange land, um, and all of that. And I think this this metaphor is perhaps particularly timely to just place on people's radar screens. Um, because where, where you think you are in the story, as it were, will obviously determine what you think you should be doing next. Right. So, exactly. um, yeah, I just think exile is an important contributor to good ethical thinking for Christians now. So, Andrew Myers wrote a review of your book, and in it he wrote, uh, he says, your biggest contribution in the book is probably your hermeneutic of toleration, something like a principled pluralism that arises from the biblical story. Mm. So what exactly is Myers getting at there? Why is that important? Yes. Now, this is a, an interesting, potentially controversial point, but that's okay. I think controversy is good. good as long as we go on to talk rather than kill each other. Um, so here's the thing. I am Nicene Orthodox conservative theology person, but I believe actually that Scripture read fully encourages us towards a liberal politics. Now, before your listeners freak out, I don't mean by that we all become Democrats. I, that's, that, that's a very debased form of political you know, reference, really. What I mean is a much bigger idea. If we ask ourselves, which kind of society should we be in favor of, right? Should it be a theocracy, for example? Should it be a monarchy? What, what should it be? And these ideas have all been viable contenders in the church in terms of, you know, philosophy about the state and so on. I, I make an argument in this book and also, again, in um, Seriously Dangerous Religion for a pluralist, liberal society, by which I mean one in which, as far as we can, up to certain limits where people are being harmed and all the rest of that, as far as we can, we allow each other latitude in how we live our lives and, and all the rest of that. Um, and I, I talk about the heart of biblical ethics being the imitation of God and how God himself appears to be adopting this posture in relation mm. to the world of um, giving us enormous moral agency, enormous freedom, 
sometimes unusually bringing judgment in very corrupt cultures. But for the most part, it's the field of the wheat, wheat and the tares, you know, growing up to the end, giving us freedom to repent or not repent, you know, not coercing us, um, you know, etc. There's a very strong argument, I think, to be made for the same idea of what I call non-utopian politics, right? Not trying to bring the kingdom of God here by next Wednesday, as it were. Not believing that if we Christians gain political power, our first task would be to impose the law of Moses on everybody, or even Christian law across the whole uh, across the whole gamut. That at least we should think about this question of the common good, as we have historically put it. Um, I think this also arises out of the commands to love your neighbors and indeed love your enemies. I, I, I think that there's a lot of reason for adopting this. In the current book, I try to show graphically on many different occasions what has happened when Christians have not taken this view and the, the, the way in which toleration, even at the most meager levels of toleration, toleration is not marked. Christian thinking ethically, and the grievous things I believe happen um, when when that view is adopted. So um, that's that's I think what the reviewer is referring to there. That um, I think built into imitating God, loving your neighbor, and loving your enemy is already a philosophy of tolerance and to a degree, pluralism. I'm not naive about this. I don't think all things are compatible. I don't think each of us should just be allowed to do what we want in society. That's not, not loving your neighbor either. So I do believe in law, and I do believe in some degree of coercion by the state, punishment for crime, and all the rest of that. But I think all of that, in a way, almost as regrettable concessions within a generous love of your neighbor, love your enemy spirit, you know. In other words, like divine accommodation. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so we already touched on a few of these, and this leads right into, could you go into some more detail about some of the bad examples that you write about in your book where Christians took things too far with the Old Testament as a model? Yes, well, we've alluded to some of them, um, and there are various examples I, I work through. You can think of Charlemagne basically actually committing genocide against the Saxons, for example, even in a law-governed Christian kingdom, but because of the Israel bit, you know, there, there's, there's that kind of thing. You can think about... Uh, well, let's stick with that. How did Charlemagne justify that beyond just like saying that's what the Israelites did? Well, that was it more or less, and he wasn't unchallenged. That's the interesting thing. His chief of religious advisor, a man called Alcuin, called him out on it. So it wasn't that back then, like all Christians thought the same about this stuff either. You know, there's already a kind of you know a, a courageous advisor there standing against royal power and just saying that's not right a christian king doesn't shouldn't do that uh, and i would say actually that as bad as christian civilization has sometimes been in these areas the fact that we operate under constraints like love your neighbor and love your enemy has actually had an enormously restraining feature um 
when you compare it to other power realities where these constraints have not been in place, like Stalin's Russia or Mao's China, for example, in recent times. But that's that was a digression. You just prompted me that, <laughs> there by that question about Alkin. Um, think about the city of Munster, Anabaptist uh, right. controlled city in the Reformation period with their highly utopian politics and the horrors that resulted there. Um, you know, an unusual Anabaptist reality, uh, to be fair, but nonetheless... Fortunately, that didn't last too long. No, well, no, but it ended really badly, as you know, and it was pretty bad in the meantime as well, right? So there's an example. Um, less, less brutal, um, much, much less brutal, would be the Puritan reality in New England that, that I talk about, and I ask the question, well... Is, is this, you know, is this the kind of society that, you know, is this what being biblical means? Um, and the struggles there in terms of tolerance, non-tolerance, and the, the way in which that spawned very different kinds of colonial settlements then thereafter in places like Rhode Island and so on, precisely on the issue of how tolerant should the Christian state be. Um, so there are many, many examples that I use in the book to prompt the reader to think, well, what do I think about that? And if I don't like it, what am I supposed to do with my Bible reading? You know, and then work back to first principles and try and work out, you know, if you had, if you had a real voice in this business of how should we govern ourselves in my country, what would you, what would you say? Most of us don't have much of a voice, but supposing you did, what do you think the Christian, or at least one of the Christian views might be on this? So that's the point. That's the purpose of the exercise, really. All right. So let's lead that into the positive. And this will be our, our final question. What sort of principles, methods, paradigms, disciplines do you use to apply Old Testament ethics to a particular, if you can pick one, Hmm. Uh, current ethical issues. Show us with your ethics how you would apply that. Um, well, I can, I mean, I, would you like to pick one? I don't mind which one we do. Which one, which example would you like me to choose? Uh, uh, I don't know. You know your work better than mine, so. <laughs> um, well, let's take, let's take one of the most controversial issues of our moment, because why, why would we chicken out and take an easy one? You know, let's take... Um, Sexual, sexual identity politics. Let's take that one. Let's take something like transgenderism, which is one of the most contentious issues, I think, facing mm -hmm. the church in various parts of the world right now. Uh, this is a good example because the Bible, as far as I can see, doesn't directly talk about it, not about this actual phenomenon that we're talking about. So the question for the Christian is, can, can Scripture be held to be teaching us, nonetheless, how to address such an issue? Uh, so you're not going to specific texts here at all. You're, you're trying to go back to the big narrative and get a sense of the Christian view of the human person. You begin in Genesis once again with creation and with image bearing and with the purposes of sex and in that whole context. All the texts we still read at Christian weddings because that's what the church has believed. And you work forward from there uh, through the entire story, through the entire narrative, in terms of, of who we are to think of ourselves identity-wise and what part 
our intuitions or even our trauma or whatever play in that sense of forming our identity. And I, I believe that scripture then can be seen to teach us very clearly how we should respond to that question. Um, and the short summary of that would be um, try to understand the issue as fully as you can. Try to be as compassionate to everyone involved in the problem as you can. But don't give up on having a biblical perspective just because other people are decrying it. Um, because it's very important if we believe the scriptures to be teaching the truth, then, of course, the most loving thing is to stick to the truth, right, with regard to people who are, are having all sorts of experiences and help them to interpret those experiences within a Christian framework rather than through gender theory or, you know, or, or whatever, because that, in our view, is going to be a dead end. Um, so that's a very quick run through a massively complicated subject. Um, but that's the kind of process we're, we're asking about how would we approach such a question. And I think that's that's the kind of process of thinking that I'm advocating for here. Being biblical, but not being unthoughtful about what it means to be biblical is, is really what I'm, you know, being serious about being biblical. Um, Right, because the scriptures call us to certain standards, but then the scriptures also care us, call us to take care of the marginalized and absolutely. And in fact, the scriptures call Christ followers to a moral vision. But the thing is, we also live in a world where that moral vision is not owned, and so when we move from church to world, it's unwise to assume that our moral vision should be the basis for all of our actions in that world, because. In that other world, very often you can only get limited good by negotiating with with evil, if I can put it that way. And not to negotiate makes things worse. And so I think that we have to be very careful here not to compromise our moral vision and our discipleship and our church life, our ability to live together, to raise our kids and all the rest of that with our own freedom. I mean, I expect the kind of liberty from other people that I'm prepared to offer to them, right? It has to be a two-way street. Um, that's one thing. But then the other thing is, of course, we are supposed to be salt and light and all the rest of that. So when we get over there, we have to think hard about how we make that move. We can't just assume that everything we hold to be true and right is the only basis for engaging with the world because it's not the only basis on which God engages with the world, so far as I can see. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah. All right, good words. Well, I'm Dennis Messler. You've been listening to The Charge. Today we've been taking a look at Old Testament ethics with Dr. Ian Proven of Regent College. So, uh, Dr. Proven, thank you so much for joining us today. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'll have links below um, for your book. So, um, peace to everyone.